Well, good evening and welcome to this week's Bible study. This week we're going to be looking at James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, and we're going to be talking about this topic of remaining generous in a materialistic world. I think that this is an interesting subject to talk about at any time of year, although it's particularly interesting at the end of the year here as we're moving into the Christmas season, or we're, we're, we're basically almost finished with the Christmas season, really. Uh, but one of the things that I always hear about during this time of year are the reports of how much Americans have spent on their credit cards. And so whenever I hear these reports about how much we in America have spent on our credit cards during the Christmas shopping season, I think it's probably good timing that we came to James chapter 5 this week as we've been working our way through the book. And uh, we could talk about this idea of remaining generous in a materialistic world, because our world very much is materialistic. We struggle with that in many ways, and we'll talk about that as well. But that's going to be our subject tonight. It's not a long section from James. It's a short section, verses 1 through 6, uh, but it's certainly a, a very relevant topic. Now, let me share just a few things as we get underway here. First of all, I think we all have to admit that we're all a little greedy. Whether we like to admit that to ourselves or not, it's true. We all wrestle with it. We're all a little greedy. Uh, sometimes we, we, we want more than we want others to have. I even saw this take place at my dinner table tonight. Uh, this is a time of year where people share a lot of uh, snacks and goodies with us, and, and one of our neighbors um, blessed us with uh, these these hard pretzels that have really good seasoning on them. And I noticed as that tin of pretzels was on the kitchen table, after we all finished our, our dinner, we were all kind of fighting over who got more of those hard pretzels that were so deliciously seasoned. And I noticed a subtle competition taking place between me and one of my sons, and it's a good reminder, even when we look at this scripture tonight, we are all a little greedy. I think I was being a little greedy. I think he was being a little bit greedy. Uh, but here, let, let's, take, let's talk about this on a deeper level, too. When we look at our greeds, when we look at the things that, that we want, uh, when, we look about, when we look at the things that we crave, I think there's a deeper issue at play. And one of the things that we're actually wrestling with is this struggle to believe that Jesus is sufficient to satisfy the deepest longing of our souls. And because we struggle to believe that Jesus is sufficient to satisfy that deepest longing of our soul, we, we frequently seek that sense of satisfaction through material things. And that's something that humanity has struggled with from our earliest days. We're, we're frequently looking to satisfy the longing of our souls through material things. And that's not a healthy thing to do, because material things don't even have the capacity to satisfy the deepest longings of our souls. But yet at times we treat them like they do. The truth is, however, that our souls can ultimately only be satisfied by Jesus himself. Now, many people regularly demonstrate that their affection for worldly goods and their desire for material wealth is actually more important to them than their relationships with other people. We see this in how some people treat others. We see that, uh, that many people prioritize the accumulation of goods over the accumulation of relationships or the depth of a relationship or uh, fostering friendship. Uh, this is something that we see in many respects. And when you look at what James states in James chapter 5, 
that's one of the things that he's going to be uh, addressing in these opening verses. The fact that people demonstrate that that material goods, worldly goods, material wealth, it actually matters more to them than people do. And that's a dangerous thing. That's certainly something that we as believers in Jesus Christ want to be careful that we don't start to adopt that mindset, because I've even seen that at times among professing believers, where where we would profess to trust in Christ and follow Christ with one, you know, out of one side of our mouth, and then out of the other side of our mouth, where we're expressing our deep affection for worldly goods and Ultimately, the Lord wants more for us than that, and you're going to see some pretty stark examples of that in the opening verses of this chapter when we read them in just a moment. But one more quick thing I'll, I'll mention before we, we dig into this scripture, um, and this is more just some introspective questions that I'd like us to be thinking about this evening as uh, we w- work our way through this passage. Some things that I want you to be asking yourself are these. Why does Christ want us to remain generous in the midst of a materialistic world. So this world is, again, it's materialistic. There are people that, that would steal and kill just to, just to obtain the things that this world, they think, can offer them. And you look at what Christ modeled for us, and you look at what he directly teaches us in his word, and it's very obvious that he wants us to remain generous. He wants us to adopt his line of thinking, his manner of living, his heart toward people. He wants us to adopt that even in the midst of a materialistic world. He wants us to remain generous. So what does it look like for us to demonstrate a form of generosity that reflects his gracious and giving heart? What does it look like for us to do that? These are the type of things I want us to be wrestling with tonight as we prepare our hearts to take a look at this portion of Scripture. And I'll also ask this, is it truly better to give and bless than it is to get or receive? There's actually a quote in the book of Acts where Christ is quoted as having said uh, that it's better to give than to receive. And we could see that certainly demonstrated in his actions and in his, his giving ways. And, um, but I want us to kind of wrestle with that question as well. Do we believe it's truly better to give and to bless than it is to get or receive? That's something that I think we should wrestle with. So James answers those questions in a lovingly confrontational way in the book of James, chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. And I use that phrase, lovingly confrontational, because James really is confrontational in this passage, like he is earlier in the book as well. But it's a loving confrontation. It's the type of thing where you know you're telling somebody something they, they may not want to hear, but they desperately need to hear it. And so James tries to be lovingly confrontational. I actually had an experience earlier this morning where one I was in a meeting where one person in the meeting uh, confronted another person in the meeting, and it was a loving confrontation, but it can still feel a little awkward when that's done. And uh, But I saw a loving confrontation happen today with the goal of, of there being mutual benefit, and uh, I see James operating in a very similar way here in James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. He's confrontational, but he's really doing this as an act of love as the Holy Spirit inspired him to pen these things down. Now, let's take a look at the Scripture together. We're going to start off with verses 1 through 2, and... Um, What I'd like you to notice here as we look at these verses is that it's teaching us to invest ourselves in something that will actually last. So James 5, 1 through 2, this is what it says. Come now, you rich, 
Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. So here James, as he's starting off chapter 5, he addresses his words to those that were rich in that particular era. And by the way, this is something that applies not just to the people living during the, the time in which James wrote this. This is true of those of us living in our era as well. The principle is exactly the same. But he was trying to be lovingly confrontational to those living in the era in which he lived in, and he used his words to communicate gospel truth here. And he said to them, he said, come now, you rich. So he's addressing those who were people who had worldly means, people who were were wealthy by this world's standards. And he said, instead of, so you're, you're, you're picturing those that are wealthy, and what do, what do those that are wealthy typically invest their finances in? Uh, many who are rich uh, tend to spend a lot of their money, or uh, at least a high percentage of their money, on either their comfort or their entertainment. I was actually listening to a radio show the other day, and uh, the announcer on the radio show, the host of the program I was listening to, was talking about a well-known celebrity. I won't use that celebrity's name, uh, but this one particular celebrity had uh, taken a few of his friends out for an evening on the town, and over the course of that evening had spent, I believe the uh, the host said that he had spent $101,000 in one evening. So $101,000 on food and all sorts of other things in one evening uh, just for several people to be entertained. So six figures in one evening. And so typically you think of those that have extreme wealth as using that for their own entertainment or maybe using that for, um, you know, just their own comfort. And here you have James saying, come now, you rich. Uh, he, and, he, and he says, he, he kind of tells you something here that you wouldn't expect him to say because you would think that there'd be a lot of partying and cheering and just happiness and things like that. But he says, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. So think about that in contrast to typically how you would expect the rich to be expressing their emotions when they're celebrating. They're not going to be typically weeping and howling. They're going to be laughing. They're going to be, um, you know, just celebrating in a variety of ways. But here James is actually using some prophetic language here. Uh, when you look back in the Old Testament scriptures, and you read the words of the prophets. So you go through the major prophets, you go through the minor prophets. One of the things that the prophets of that era would commonly say was that people needed to be prepared to to weep and, and howl, because the day of the judgment of the Lord, the day of the Lord was going to come, uh, the day of the Lord's judgment. And so the Old Testament scriptures speak of these things quite frequently. And you have the Old Testament prophets using this language, saying that there's going to be a day where people are weeping and howling. Even when you look at what some of the uh, writers in scripture speak about when they, when they speak about the eternal state of those who reject Christ, we're, we're told that there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's weeping and howling. There's great sorrow. And here James is saying, listen, right now you're celebrating, you rich, but keep in mind that 
unless you receive Christ, unless you begin to see yourself and what he's entrusted to you from his perspective, that celebration that you're currently in uh, enjoying and that revelry that you're currently in the midst of is going to turn into weeping and howling. He says, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you, not the good things that are coming upon you, but the, the miseries that are coming upon you because you persist in your unrepentant state. And he says, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. And it's interesting to me to look at a statement like that where he's talking about riches rotting and garments being moth-eaten because it shows that it does matter what we invest our lives in. And many people are investing their lives in things that can rot and things that can be eaten by insects. And you think, okay, well, why do that? Well, so often people get consumed, us included, with what we can see with our eyes, and we treat what we can see with our eyes as if that's all there ever was or all there ever will be. A few years ago, I saw an article about a mansion. I believe it was a former mansion uh, that Mike Tyson owned, so the famous boxer Mike Tyson. And I guess this this mansion, at one point, he had spent so much money on it, and now it was sitting there abandoned, that it became like an abandoned mansion of some kind. And I think of something like that when you look at this statement here where it says your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten, because it's an example of why it's important not to invest your life in something that, that is ultimately going to fade away. Rather, we're to invest our lives in what will actually last. And Scripture is very clear that the kingdom of God is what we should be investing our lives in, ultimately. We, we do that through proclaiming the gospel. We do that by helping other people grow in their walk with Christ. We do that by focusing on the mission that Christ has given us, the great commission that he outlined in Matthew chapter 28. When we're focusing on the mission Christ has given us, we're actually investing ourselves in something that will last forever. But if we're just spending our lives for our material pleasures, like those James was addressing in this passage happened to be doing, we're, en- we're, we're going to end up uh, basically consuming our time with, with things that, that rot or things that could be eaten by insects. So we don't want to do that. For us as believers in Jesus Christ, we want to invest ourselves in something that will actually last. Now, James goes on when you get into verse 3 of James chapter 5. Uh, and to to tell us that essentially here it's time right now it's time to meet needs, not hoard pleasures. Look at what he says in James chapter five verse three. He says, "Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days." So you could see a, a conclusion here, or a continuation, I should say, of some of the things that James was talking about in the previous verses. Because here he says, your gold and your silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. Now, typically, when you think of gold and silver, I think we typically think of gold and silver as precious metals that really just continue to go on being precious. We don't think of them as corroding. We don't think of them as... Um, as, you know, ultimately not being useful. And here James is saying, even the things that you would consider most precious in this world, they don't tend to have an eternal value. Your gold and your silver, he's saying, even even these things will fade away. Your gold and silver have, have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you. 
And so he, he's saying, you know, these are the things that the wealthy at times have placed their greatest hope in, whether they stored up enough gold, whether they stored up enough silver. And they think, okay, maybe that'll help me weather this storm or help me weather that storm. Instead of looking at what they have been given as an opportunity to serve somebody else, as an opportunity to bless somebody else. And so James makes this comment here. He says, you have laid up treasure in the last days. You've laid up treasure in the last days. What he's saying here is you're selfishly hoarding resources in the last days. You're holding on to something that you should actually be sharing. It's time to meet needs, not hoard pleasures. Now, it's interesting when you look in the Scriptures, and it makes comments related to the last days. Keep in mind, James wrote these things down just about 2,000 years ago. And so from our perspective, 2,000 years sounds like a long time. So why is he calling it the last days? Well, the last days is a phrase that's typically used to reference the time between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. The last days, you know, when, when Christ was first incarnate here on this earth and the time in which he, you know, when he plans to come again. And here James is saying this is an important time. This is a time where we need to be a, a bit more serious and not casual about everything. And he's saying, if you have resources like gold and silver, things like this that are entrusted to you, don't spend your entire life just trying to hoard pleasures. Look for needs that you can meet. Don't lay up treasure in the last days. There are going to be perilous times that come upon people. And James is saying, use these resources that have been entrusted to you, whatever they may be, to bless somebody else. Notice a need. Meet a need. And don't be somebody that just hoards these things up in the last days. And so this is part of his challenge here to the to the selfishly wealthy during his era. And I will say this, it's not like James is saying that, that it's intrinsically wrong uh, to, to be somebody that, that becomes wealthy. There are certainly many people that become wealthy uh, doing very honest things, and that's certainly fine. But he's saying, if the Lord entrusts wealth to you, you don't just treat it as something where you're just going to hoard pleasures. Look at it as a stewardship where you say, all right, if the Lord's entrusted this to me, now I need to have eyes that are open to actually meet needs and not just continue to satisfy my greeds as if, as if that's all I ever need to focus on. Now, James goes on when you look at verse 4 to give a specific example of the ways in which some of the rich during that era were taking advantage of other people. And I'm just going to ask this as a question here that I want us to be thinking about before I read James chapter 5, verse 4. But I, I just want us to ask this question of ourselves, how well are you rewarding those who support you? So there's people in your day-to-day -day life who support you and help you and bless you in a variety of ways. How do you reward those people? How do you actually meet their needs? How, how do you bless them? How well are you rewarding those who actually help you and support you? And the way James speaks of this in James 5, verse 4, he says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. So those of us on the call here live, and we're going to have some discussion in just a few minutes, uh, and those of you possibly listening to this via uh, the podcast, 
I think all of us need to be grateful that we live in the era in which we live, because it was a very challenging thing to live in the era in which James was writing these things that we're looking at here in James chapter 5. And during the era in which James lived, and there are certainly places throughout the world where this is still the case, but it was common in in his area uh, for people to be day laborers. And so as a day laborer, you would work for somebody. So you'd work for a landowner. And in this, in this context here, you have James talking about those who are mowing fields and those who are harvesting. So they're day laborers who are taking care of these fields, taking care of, of bringing in a harvest, and they're paid basically enough to sustain them the next day. So tomorrow's food is purchased with today's wages. And if you withhold the wages of the laborers who have now mowed your fields and taken care of your harvest, if you withhold that, you're not just withholding money from them. In the context in which James was writing here, that meant you were withholding food from them and their family for the next day. So that meant if you didn't pay them today, they would not be able to buy the food that they needed for the next day. And so in the context in which James lived, it was not uncommon for people to die of starvation because of being robbed by those who had the means to pay them for the work that they did, and yet they withheld those wages. And what kind of recourse did these these people in utter poverty have during that era? In many cases, they had no recourse. The only thing they could do is just cry out to the Lord and ask the Lord to show them mercy to cry out to the Lord and ask the Lord to, to, to let there be justice because they were being taken advantage of. And here you have the rich being accused here by James of withholding wages by fraud. And now you have these day laborers crying out against them. And those cries were going up before the Lord. And how do you think the Lord is going to ultimately respond to someone who defrauds somebody else, somebody who cannot not feed their family now because uh, these wages were withheld unjustly? And so I think of it even just from the positive standpoint, too. If you're in a position where there are people that have helped you or are helping you, uh, people who... um, you know, just just support the the business or industry you're in or the ministry that you're part of. There are people that help you, even in your own household. I always think, you know, I want I want us to be thinking about this in a very applicable way so that we're not just looking at this and saying, oh, those terrible other people. I think we need to look at ourselves and say, okay, when people help me, am I rewarding them or am I withholding reward that I could give them because I have selfish motives? So sometimes that might happen on a small scale, but the Lord wants us to be generous in all areas, small areas and in large areas, because we we as believers in Christ are to reflect the generous heart of Christ. So again, here you have James confronting in a very meaningful way those who were defrauding uh, those that lived in the most poverty or the, the, the most destitute state during the era in which James was living. And he's saying, listen, you, you may think you're getting away with something, but you're not getting away with anything. The cries of the harvest, harvesters, the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts, and the Lord of hosts is going to act on their behalf. And it's a fascinating thing to be able to see here because James is basically giving this out as a warning. He's saying, okay, you think you're getting away with something, but nobody gets away with anything. 
For a period of time, you might feel like you're getting away with something, but the truth is you're not getting away with anything. And there's one last thing that he brings up in James chapter 5, verses 5 and 6 that I want us to notice, and that's this. I think he's encouraging us to look around and to observe what we might be failing to notice. What are we failing to notice? We need to look around. What aren't we seeing? What are we failing to notice? The way he phrases it in verses 5 and 6 here, he says it this way. Again, to the rich, but I want us to apply this to ourselves, whether you feel like you're rich or not. But he he says this, you have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. And I look at a portion of Scripture like that, and I it makes me wonder, what am I not noticing? You know, am I so used to the blessings of the Lord that I just take them for granted? Am I not noticing the needs of other people? Am I just fattening my heart in a day of slaughter like, like James describes in this portion of Scripture here? Am I just trying to live a life of luxury and self-indulgence like he describes here? And maybe you don't feel like, you know, I, 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 well, let me put it this way. In our culture here in the United States, I mean, we live well, even those of, of modest means here in the United States, because of the infrastructure we have here and the nature of our economy. In general, we tend to live well. And I wonder how our lifestyles, even if we consider our lifestyle modest, how it would compare to those who were considered wealthy during the time in which James wrote these things. I actually think we live a more luxurious existence in many respects than some of those who would have been considered wealthy during this particular time. And James here is saying, look, you've lived a life on earth in luxury, a life of self-indulgence. You fatten your heart in a day of slaughter. And, and he says, you've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Now, one of the things that that some of the the super wealthy during that time, uh, one of the things they would do is basically they would treat people like animals. They would treat them like just a commodity that was expendable. And in not feeding somebody and then that person starving because you haven't paid them their wages, have you not effectively murdered that person? And it's also possible that in some contexts during that era that that some of the wealthy just treated people like they were expendable in other ways and maybe did arrange for their direct murder because they were more of a burden on their finances. It certainly happens. It happens in this era, and it happened in that era. The heart of mankind is very capable of doing things like that. And so you have James. Again, he's confronting this, but I want us to look around and to just ask the Lord to show us, Lord, what am I failing to notice? Is there somebody? Is there some righteous person? Is there somebody that has need that I'm not noticing because I'm so consumed with luxury or I'm so consumed with self-indulgence? Am I so consumed with fattening myself and, and I'm not noticing the needs of other people? And, and I don't say that in um, an overly critical way, but when I look at a portion of Scripture like this, I think one of the things I try to do is I, I try and I try and point the fingers at myself, because if there's something here that I'm supposed to be convicted of, I want to be convicted of it so I make changes. And so I kind of point that out to us here so that we could be lovingly confrontational even to ourselves as we look at something like this, so that it's not just about those, those other people that lived during a time so distant from ours. But we want to look at this and say, all right, Lord, maybe 
Maybe I'm failing to notice some things. Maybe there's some things going on around me that I'm not noticing that you would have me notice. And so that's something that James points out here to us. And I'd like us to just think about that as well, even as we think about what does it look like to be generous in the midst of a materialistic world. Uh, I'll say this as I kind of finish up my comments and then segue us into uh, our discussion here. But many people in this world are, again, just trying to satisfy the deepest longing of their soul with material things, living on this earth in luxury and self-indulgence. And for those of us as believers in Christ, we want to adopt the heart of Christ. And Christ is generous. Christ blesses. Christ gives. And, uh, and Christ ultimately seeks to meet needs. And so as he enables us to do so, we want to have eyes that see that and a heart that's sensitive to that so that we don't end up going in the direction that you have James confronting here in this portion of Scripture. It was something that, that he was confronting among those of the early church, and it was also something that he was confronting among unbelievers living during that era who seemed to have a tendency of taking advantage of many of the people around them. Now, I'm going to... Um, in just a second, I'm going to stop the screen share here, and I'm going to bring us all up on the screen so that we could have some discussion. Those of you who are joining us via the podcast, I'd also invite you to stop by my website, which is desirejesus.com. You'll find a, a bunch of resources over there. You'll find some uh, just tons of free resources that you could download and utilize, and I hope that you'll make use of that. And right now I have a book over there that you could download for free. Uh, it's called The Mind of Christ, and it's all about learning to think and perceive the way Jesus does so that we start to see ourselves and this world and other people with his eyes. So again, you could find that at desirejesus.com. You could download it for free, and I hope that it's something that'll be a blessing to you. So let me stop the screen share here, and I'm going to bring up our guests on um, on the view here, and I can see everybody. And I'm going to start us off with a question here, and if you're able to uh, to jump in here with the questions here, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. But the first question I have for us is this. What is the Lord calling you to invest your life in? And I bring that up because when you look at that portion of Scripture that we just read, you have some people that they they basically treat it as if their life is being, like the Lord's given them their life so that they can invest their life just in material goods. But obviously we know that the answer is not just investing our, our life in material resources. So, so what do you truly believe the Lord has called you specifically to invest your life in? Is there anyone that might want to get our get the ball rolling for us here and, and just kind of start us off with an answer to that? What's the Lord called you to invest your life in? What do you think? Don, could I call on you to be uh, our uh, the one that gets the ball rolling for us here? Sure, I wanted to jump on anyway, but I'm trying to take another thing from James and be in... Uh quick to listen and slow to speak, but uh, we so, covered that. Right. A weeks yeah, but I, I need somebody to break the ice. So you, I, you're, you're a safe person to break the ice. So I'm, I, the first thing that came to mind was preaching and teaching the word of God, because I'm serving as a pastor in a local church, but uh, more personally, uh, I've had a calling put on me for uh, another verse out of James. You know, James one twenty seven. it talks about uh, looking after orphans and widows in their distress. Mm. And that's something that uh, personally I'm working on a home for, uh, we're actually looking at doing something with uh, 
like unwed mothers, young girls who maybe have gotten themselves pregnant and and uh, have no place to go and maybe thinking about abortion. So we're uh, trying to pour, we're putting together a home now that we could probably put a half dozen uh, girls in that in that circumstance in and then try to get them connected with housing and and things of that nature. So that's what I feel he uh, he's put on my heart to do with my resources, with my abilities to do the work on the house. Uh, our church, our local church congregations on board with feeling called to minister to uh, to women. We also go with like you know when a sinking ship and they say women and children first. So that's a another little cliche that we kind of like going with, but uh, that's all stuff that looks like it's uh, coming to fruition here. We did get one house finished at the end of 2020 here, and we got one family in there, but the next one is going to be like a group home. And uh, it has has nothing to do with the stuff that I used to do in investing in real estate and flipping houses and and, and the materialistic gains of this type of work, mm-hmm. it's all more about trying to uh, show people the love of God and give them a helping hand. That's awesome. That's cool. So the, the Lord's been giving you some clarity about that, that that's a way that you could minister in the name of Christ to these women. So he's given you clarity on on investing your life in that. That's fantastic. I didn't I didn't know you were doing that. That's pretty cool. Very good. Thanks for sharing that. Anyone else want to chime in on that? What's the Lord calling you to invest your life in? What do you think? What do you think, Craig? Sure. I'll, I'll chime in. I, I've got a, a similar story, too. And I'm a, a member of, I believe, from the local area, it's a significantly large church. And uh, we we partner with the community and, and you know, do a lot, of, a lot of serving, a lot of events that go on throughout the year. And recently, um, the last year or two, we've partnered with um, uh, John, depending upon where you're located in Pennsylvania, you may be familiar. Uh, we've partnered with an organization in uh, Delaware and Chester County called Good Neighbors. And they're about um, uh, assisting uh, people who just don't have the financial resources in it and are in rather significant dire straits with some aspect of their house. And one of the teams that I've um, gotten connected with is um, replacing roofs on houses. And that's something that I enjoy doing, if you can possibly imagine that. And we have a, <laughs> we have a great team of people who go in and get uh, get that knocked out, tear off the old one, replace whatever needs to be, and put a new one on. And, um, and to my mind and where I come from, I, I, I'm thankful and blessed that I'm able to still do that, let alone enjoy it. And I find it, you know, kind of rather unassuming and not a big deal. But of course, as you might imagine for the homeowner, it's It's a huge deal. It's way over the top for them. And it's just incredible how thankful they are for something so simple as that, you know, from my perspective. Yeah. And and it's wonderful that that, um, believers in Christ are able to partner together to bless people that way. That's fantastic. Very cool. Yeah, we have a lot of fun doing it, too, and, yeah, it's really an enjoyable, good time. Excellent. Excellent. Um, here, here's, like, a, a related question to that, and anyone feel free to, to jump in on this, but how can you actually tell what a person is invested in? So the question I, I had asked a moment ago is, what's the Lord calling you to invest your life in? 
uh, but I'm, I'm just kind of flipping that question around a tiny bit here. How can you actually tell what a person is invested in? So if I tell you I'm invested in something, that my life is invested in something, um, how can you tell what it's actually invested in? Well, I'd imagine it would be uh, how much time you spend in that particular uh, aspect of your life. More yeah, time, time being one thing. You're investing in. Yeah. And by the way, Ian, it's great to have you with us tonight. Thanks for, for jumping on the call here. I finally got my mic in. Uh, you finally got it all working there. Yeah, yeah, no, it's all working great. Yeah, yeah. So time, right? So they, one thing that people would say is like, okay, one thing you could do if you want to tell what somebody's invested in, look at their calendar or look at their schedule. All right. So time is one way. Any, any other ways that we could tell what we're actually invested in? Because here's what you, we all know, right? A lot of us in, in this world are just talk. <laughs> you know, there's some people that, that uh, like most people really just talk a good game and, and, but you can tell what somebody's really invested in, in a variety of ways. And so the use of time being one of them, uh, any, anything else come to mind? Yeah, I think this is so interesting because um, I think that the Holy Spirit has been at least talking to me about this issue. And I know that I'm not, um, I'm pretty selfish. I'm, I'm single and all of my time is my own. It's just me and my dog blue right here. Oh, look at, look at this guy. Let me see him again. What, what, what do you got there? What kind of, that's a pit bull. He's a pit. I was gonna say, is he a pit bull? I'm seeing his profile. So yeah, nice. He's a he's asleep. Did I, did I bore him to tears there? He's he looks yeah. very content. <laughs> um, yeah. And by but, the way, Hannah, we're all selfish by nature, right? We all are. Yeah, Scripture tells us these things because the Lord knows our tendencies. But anyway, continue your thought. Yeah, but I think maybe I'm just feeling very convicted about my self orientedness and um yeah and and just finances are where it's really highlighted because i mean that's what you spend your money on is is kind of the uh the litmus test of where your heart is and uh i i think i think as a single person you have a lot more options in regards to what you can spend your money on because yeah it's just there's a lot more opportunity for um, you don't have to live at a level where if you're married, if you have kids, a lot of the resources are going to those things. And yeah. if you're single, I mean, yeah, it's just, it's a different world for, 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 um, so I live, I live in a community. So I have like mm -hmm. a bunch of uh, roommates and um, I, I see them as part of my goal of, of living in, in more of a kingdom oriented style of living mm -hmm. and um yeah i think that's a that's a really powerful testimony of how you deal with your finances really mm -hmm. does speak to the world because that's the language that the world speaks but it's not yeah. the language that that the kingdom of god speaks the kingdom of god speaks in relationship that's that right. is what, so if you can translate um money into relationships fine figure out how you can do that Use the yeah. money to build those relationships. So that's so Ian brings up the idea of time. Hannah brings up the idea of finances, right? So our 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 time, our finances, those are two key ways that you can tell what someone's invested in. Um, there, there's one other thing that comes to my mind, 
there were three things that came to my mind related to how, how can you tell what somebody's actually investing their life in? So time, finances, and one other uh, thing comes to my mind. What do you think, Paul? Time, talent, and treasure. Yeah, so so this would be like the talent part, right? You know, so elaborate on that. What what would the talent part be? What another way to say that? Well, we all we all have those things that we want to do. But God tells us what He wants us to do, and we submit. You know, and that's uh, and if we don't submit, well, God will find somebody else to get that thing done. You know, but <laughs> and we miss the opportunity. Yeah, yeah. We, we you know. And God gives us the freedom to choose. Yeah. But it's time, talent, and treasure. Yeah. So we want to use the the actual effort of our hands, right? The actual physical energy that the Lord has given us, the strength he's given us to actually accomplish what he's called us to do. So we set aside the time, we devote the resources, and then we use the strength that he supplies. And Sometimes, uh, sometimes it's not just strength, because talent that's a wide variety you can right for example the talent of influence you can influence for the good or you can influence for the bad and we all we're all gifted in different ways so the question is how do we get, how do we use the gifts that mm-hmm. god has given us right yeah i mean ultimately it's a this whole thing is a stewardship question right we're talking about this idea of of investing our life you know it's a stewardship of our life how about this um, you know, we were looking at some of these scriptures here, uh, you know, when we looked at uh, verse 3 in particular, and it's talking about this idea of the last days. Why do you suppose scripture encourages us to have a sense of urgency about the last days? Even when you, when you can, you know, just consider how James phrases it there. Uh, what do you think? Why, why does the scripture encourage us to have a, a sense of urgency about the last days? What do you think, Paul? We know not the time or the hour of our Lord's coming. And uh, when he comes, you know, there will be two people working on the threshing floor. One will be taken, one will be left. Yeah. um, We need to always be aware. I mean, for us, this particular time, it's not just, uh, you know, uh, people are celebrating Christmas already. The Catholics are still waiting. We're waiting until the 24th with Christmas Mm -hmm. Eve. Right now, for us, it's Advent. Right. We're preparing for the for not only for the celebration of the birth two thousand years ago, but his his ultimate coming, because the Lord will come, and He will judge the quick and the dead. Yeah, and we have to be ready for that because that could be. Uh, I think uh, Thomas Kempis says, at any time when we le- when we least expect it, mm-hmm. the Lord will come. Right. Yeah, and th- that's the that's the impression he's he's given us. You know, be prepared. At any time, at any time, you know, it could be one of my favorite things to do when I'm I'm speaking or preaching on this subject is to just kind of throw that the question out there. What if it's in five minutes? What if the Lord's returning five minutes from now? What if he's coming tomorrow? You know, if you phrase it that way in your mind, does it does it feed a sense of urgency? I think it does. You know, I think it does, because usually when we think of the Lord's return, we think of that as being a distant thing. We think of that being, a, yeah, I know at some point he's coming back, but, you know, we think, oh, maybe not in my lifetime. Well, guess what? It's going to be in somebody's lifetime. So very well may be yours. You know, we may be that generation, uh, but he's given us a sense of urgency, right? And he refers to it as the last days, realizing 
You have a short period of time. You have a short window. And let's say, you know, even if he does come well after our earthly lives are finished, well, we only have just a few decades. So, you you know, even from the urgency sense of the fact that we have a brief snippet of time in which to honor the Lord during our time here on this earth, that in and of itself should also create some urgency for us. But I do think it's fascinating when you look through Scripture, all all, all the references that it gives to us. Uh, about it being the last days. It's like a motivating factor, right? You know, it's trying to motivate us. Um, all right, here, here's another question for us. I, I'd be curious to hear some of your answers here. Have you ever, and and don't, since this is recorded, don't use any names or identifying details with this, okay? <laughs> I'll have to edit it out, and I don't want to have to do that if I don't have to. <laughs> um, but have you ever worked for a boss that took advantage of your time and your efforts. <laughs> Remember, no names. But have you ever worked for a boss that, truthfully, you thought, that boss really takes advantage of my time and my efforts? Do you ever have an experience like that? What do you think? Yeah, go ahead. I always thought that uh, God, I mean, from my perspective, I would have liked it a little easier. But God always seemed to take advantage of my time. <laughs> <laughs> well, he gave you the time, so he he can call it up whenever he wants. So that's true. <laughs> I'm I'm more referring to you know, oh, uh, uh, just you know, and like an earthly employer or somebody like that. Do you ever have ever worked for somebody like that 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 you really felt like they took advantage of your time and your efforts, or did has literally everybody on the call here only had good bosses? I've had uh, some of both, but I think that the uh, defining factor is um, gratitude. Uh, if you're, you have a personal relationship with a person that uh, is hiring you, they have gratitude for you, and they they treat you better. Versus a corporate environment, there's not much gratitude there. You're more of a number. And I think that uh, gratitude is probably one of the major factors in recognizing that we should be giving of our of our blessings because gratitude is the acknowledgement that God has blessed us with these resources. So without uh, without acknowledging that they're not ours, really, they're they're given to us. Right. Um, it's harder to give them away to, to others. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And it, and you know, so it's you you know, if you're in a position of leadership, you want to be somebody who expresses the gratitude. If you're under leadership, you want to express, like Ian said, this this idea of gratitude. It's certainly nice when you're in a context and you feel genuinely appreciated. Um, I remember years ago. Uh, I worked for somebody and um and then they had a vacancy that they couldn't fill and my wife said, "You know what? I will help out with that vacancy." Uh she I saw she just unmuted. So I'm being purposely vague. Maybe uh maybe she could share the rest of the details. Do you remember what I'm referring to? Yes, um I came and filled in for just uh, like a few days. Um, it was more than just a few. You, I mean, no. you, you actually did it for a couple of weeks, if you remember. I, I don't, I guess. See, um, it's all a blur in your mind. You're yeah. just giving. <laughs> but I, I do remember feeling like we we basically received criticism more than like a, a thank you for yeah. filling in. And, you know, we had two young children. So doing it meant actually bringing them with me and managing right. that. And um I just remember being a little surprised that they weren't at least a little bit thankful for the effort because it wasn't a minimal amount of effort. 
And it also wasn't something you were being compensated for. I, yeah, I, right. I, I still remember, I mean, you bailed them out big time. And, uh, and I, I thought, wow, like how, how gracious. And you would think in a context like that, the only thing that somebody would say is, Hey, thank you. <laughs> Thanks for keeping things afloat, you know, for, for all those days. And, uh, yeah, I just remember at that time distinctly feeling like your, your time and your effort and your gracious demeanor were being taken advantage of. And it was not a pleasant feeling. I didn't appreciate it. And I, I know I remember it being hurtful to you in the context. Um, so for, for us as believers, and I, I, as believers, I, I, I bring this up because here James brings it up. He talks about this idea of withholding wages back from those that have, have uh, cleared the fields and harvested. Why, as Christians, should we resist taking advantage of somebody else's time and somebody else's effort? Why, as believers, should we never take advantage of somebody's time and effort? Well, I think any of us who have experienced feeling taken advantage of, it feels terrible. And it leaves a really bad taste for um, the person and sometimes even what that person represents. So, like, in some contexts, it could be a boss, but it could also leave you with a bad taste for even, like, a company. And so, as Christians, since we represent Jesus— like if we leave a bad taste in somebody else's mouth or like if we leave a bad taste in somebody that like they very well may translate that as um, being turned away from um, from from Jesus. And so I think that's something we have to be super careful about. Yeah, very much. Um I would would jump in with just a brief one too that just at its very base, its most base level, it's just not the right thing to do. So right, not what you should. Yeah, as as believers who represent Christ, we want to make sure that that we honor His intention, honor His heart. Yeah. Any other thoughts on that? Um, I was going to just add that it's probably related to justice. We're all very justice oriented, um, and um, I'm thinking that that's a, as a believer, then you would want to reflect justice in your own, um, dealings with people. And so it would just be a, re- a reflection of God's character. Yeah. As, as someone who's grateful to have received the justice of God in the sense yeah, that, that the mercy of God, you know, we received the mercy of God, but the justice, uh, ultimately shown to us in the, the fact that Christ took our condemnation upon himself and then showed us mercy in its place, but we have a just God who ultimately rights wrongs. We don't want to be the type of people that are um, <laughs> creating additional issues when we're supposed to be representing the one who is just. Yeah, very good. Ian, you, it, did you have something to say too? Yeah, I think that um, we, you know, we're all called to be Christ-like, and uh, Christ had a very special affinity for the poor, and yeah, in the context of uh, Christmas. Um, it's important to remember that, you know, they, God had uh, uh, the ability to be born into any family and he was born into the poorest of the poor. Right. Um, and grew up in a, a poor family and, mm-hmm. you know, could only give uh, the poorest sacrifice at the temple. Uh, so uh, clearly there's a, there's a respect and um, an equality there between, uh, between us. Yeah, Absolutely. And, and how about the comment, I'm, I'm sure, and I, this is where we're going to finish up tonight here, 
Um, but did you notice that line in, in verse five of, um, of James five, where, where he says, all right, you have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. And then he says, you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. It's very vivid language. So when I look at that, I, I look at somebody who's just living in spiritual denial. You know, if somebody's fattening their heart in a day of slaughter, someone's living in luxury and self-indulgence in a perilous day, it doesn't fit, right? You you have to be living in some in some sense of spiritual denial. You have to be denying what's going on around you if you're willing to take your life in that direction. So so in your opinion, and, and I just I thought it'd be interesting to kind of finish up with this tonight. Um, what do you think it looks like in our day and age for someone to live in spiritual denial. What does that look like? What do you think, Don? Go ahead. I think just uh, uh, something that I hear a whole lot when uh, evangelizing, let me say that, is uh, most people seem to have a concept that they're good, that they're good people, that they do you know, they don't do things like the other guy or whatever and don't have to uh, don't have to read the Bible, don't have to go to church. You know, that they're OK with God and God's OK with them. So they're good. And I, I think that's the biggest uh, blindness or spiritual denial, whatever you want to call it, to think that somehow in our humanness we're able to be good enough. And I think that comes from how bad the world is. You can be a pretty bad person and still think you're okay if yeah. if God grades yeah. on a curve. If, yeah, right. you know. What I'm yeah, yeah, you can't. Yeah, well, because we're, what we're doing is we're comparing ourselves with each other instead of comparing ourselves with Christ. And if you compare yourself with Christ, you realize, oh, wait a second, I fall short. So if if He doesn't lift me up, I'm stuck down here. And uh, yeah, that's a good example of how how we uh, can very much live in in spiritual denial because we it's basically living your life failing to realize just how much you need Jesus. Um, and, any other thoughts on on what what does it look like in, you know in your estimation for someone to live in spiritual denial? What do you think, Paul? I was uh, thinking as as Don was uh, speaking. By the way, uh, Don might be able to uh, appreciate this, but when you were talking earlier about getting your house ready and so forth. I, I, I don't know how you read up a house in five minutes, but uh, that's what they say up his area. Um, You're going to read up the house? <laughs> read up the house, yeah. Read up I the house. Pittsburgh girl, so. Oh, did you? <laughs> anyway, uh, what I what I was going to say is uh, I see on bumper, on cars, uh, a lot of these coexist uh, stickers, and it's, yeah. a real, it's, it's supposed to be a real nice thought lets everybody all get along uh and uh everything is is equal uh we're all good there's uh there is uh in this in the secular world there is a very strong uh tinge of moral relativism that uh everything is good you know from my perspective so that makes it good uh and uh the fact is that uh you know uh there may be there may be many beliefs out there, but there is only one way. Mm-hmm. And Jesus said, "I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me." Right. And we have to remember that that uh, in a world that is very uh, moral relativistic, 
and uh, where everybody just wants to seem to get along, that there is there there are things called absolute truths, and uh, we need to stand by them, and we need to we're called to witness that, and uh, we don't do a good job when we're thinking about ourselves or or material things, but um, but this business about coexisting and uh, the moral relativism it's it makes it difficult for the church because as soon as um, we point out that uh, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, you're you're immediately a bigot. And uh, but it ha it's it's not unique to our time. It's been part of the Christian um, history for the past two thousand years. So you you would say that just like James was in his day. We also have an opportunity to be somewhat lovingly confrontational. Yeah, yeah, we right. have to. And yeah. another, and in the the final verse, I don't know if you're going to get to it, but uh, depending on the translation that you're using, I I was looking at the NRSV, mm -hmm. and it's the last verses. You have condemned and murdered the righteous one, not not a righteous person, but the righteous one. Mm -hmm. And depending on how that would be interpreted. You may you may have uh, by your actions or your your uh, um, greed uh, you have condemned the righteous one, Jesus himself, which he died for on the cross for our sins. So there's another aspect to that too. Um, anyway, yeah, and he he tells us how you know the the care we have shown to the least of these we have shown to him. Yeah, very good. Very good. Well, we have come to the top of the hour here, so it's time for us to to finish up. Thank you guys so much for jumping on tonight's call. Truly appreciate it. So tonight we had representatives from Delaware and Hawaii and New Hampshire and Pennsylvania. And Pennsylvania gets uh, Pennsylvania is definitely in the lead as far as uh, uh, the state that gets represented most on our calls here. So we got to see, uh, you know, extend an invitation to those around you. Let's see if we can get some more uh, uh, states represented here in the union. But I hope you guys have an awesome Christmas. I hope it's a wonderful time with your friends, family, and with your church. And um, looking forward to getting together again. Our next time that we're going to get together is in two weeks, and that's going to be on January 5th. So if you're able to join us on January 5th, we're going to pick up at James chapter 5, verse 7. And we're going to be talking about this concept of, of suffering and what it ultimately looks like to suffer as a believer. And and uh, so we're going to pick up there. So we in, invite you to join us that evening if you're able to, January 5th being our, our next opportunity to get together. Uh, well, those of you joining us on the podcast, we'd also invite you to stop by the website, desirejesus.com. You can find more information there. We hope the resources we have available for you there are very useful. Well, thanks, everybody, for joining us tonight. It was great to see you all. And Lord willing, hope to be able to see you again very soon. Hey, friend, I'm Brooke McLaughlin, host of the Everyday Prayers podcast, a ministry of Million Praying Moms, and I'm here to invite you to partner with God for the hearts of your children on the daily. Our goal at Everyday Prayers is to help moms understand and pray God's Word. Join us each weekday as we share insights from God's Word for today's Christian mom. Tune in to the Everyday Prayers podcast in your favorite app or by visiting lifeaudio.com.